0: Well, amen. Uh, true story, I was in a gospel quartet for one day, and we sang that song in that quartet, and I have never been asked to be in a quartet again. Um, but I love, I love that song, I love the season, I love the series that we've been in as we've been exploring these themes of Advent, uh, hope, peace, joy. And today, love, if you have a Bible, I invite you to be pulling that out. We're going to be turning to some pages in Scripture here in just a moment. Uh, In reality, uh, Advent is not so much a time that we, we celebrate the birth of Jesus in the manger as much as it is a time that we long for the coming of a Savior. And so, Advent is really this longing for redemption. And I'll just ask you a question this morning from what do we need to be redeemed? If you were to just take out a piece of paper, and just at the top of that paper, things from which there's a grip on me, things from which that I need to be redeemed, what would you list? What would be the things on that piece of paper? Uh, That you would personally list. Maybe on that piece of paper you put bad habits. Maybe there's some bad habits that that you need to be redeemed from or released from. Uh, Maybe it's uh, relationships that that are undesirable, that you need to, that you have a grip, there's a grip on you from, that you need to be released from. Uh, Maybe it's uh, other things like a bad temper or lust or jealousy or greed or envy or dishonesty. These are things which we need to be redeemed from. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian during World War II, eventually executed at the end of the war in 1945, he said that it's easy to look around and to see the ruins to which Christ must come again. From what do we need to be redeemed from? And the reality is that this is a season in which uh, the the lonely can become lonelier. Uh, This is actually a season where the brokenhearted can have wounds that are reopened and and revisited during this time. And we turn to, or we are tempted to turn to uh, what some would describe as escapist behavior. Uh, things that just allow us to get away from some of those realities or feelings in our life. Uh, So escapist behavior can be just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling on social media, one reel after the next reel, after the next reel, after the next reel, And, and what we learn from this endless scrolling is that oftentimes it becomes unfulfilled watching. And so what Advent teaches us, what Advent reminds us of and challenges us to do is to watch another way, to watch a completely different way, to keep watching and to keep hoping because Jesus is coming again. And this is not a fantasy, but it's actually a reality that's available. It's available to our imaginations as we reflect on the alreadyness of the coming of the kingdom of god and all we and we also reflect on the the not yetness of the, the fullness of that kingdom having come and so one symbol that we often see this year you'll see uh, one behind me on on the cross you'll see one on the screen you'll see him on the doors as you come in so we see this symbol of a wreath Uh, I'm so thankful we've, we've got, I didn't count all the wreaths that we have here, but there's no less than a dozen scattered throughout this building. And, and what we're reminded of through the symbol of the wreath is this unending, unfailing that Andrew Kerr read for us a few moments ago from the book of Psalms, this unfailing love. It's, it's not altogether unlike you know the wedding band that some of us wear that, that is this unending circle. And I know you hear that cliche in wedding ceremonies a lot about the unending circle, but it's really true. It's, it's, a, it's an unfailing type of love, even more so than that in our, some of our marriage covenants is the unfailing love of God, this circular shape of the wreath. And so often when we talk about this theme of, of love, we, we reflect on passages like First John 4, 8, and 4 John 4, 8 says, who- whoever does not love does not know God because what? Because God is love. Love is at the heart of who God is. Love anchors us to God. For God so what? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Have eternal life, have everlasting life. The prophet Isaiah would say this is one of the titles of the coming king, that he would be everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God. Or we turn to passages like 1 Corinthians 13. This one thing remains that we just sang a moment ago. That if I don't have love, I, I gain nothing. That, that love never fails. And ultimately what First Corinthians 13 says is that there's a day coming when God's great love will be complete. So most often when we consider this theme in light of the Christmas story, uh, we consider it from Earth's perspective. Uh, this is where the sermon message is going to take a little bit of a turn. Because most often, uh, when we think about the Christmas story, we think about it from Earth's perspective. We think about it from the account of Matthew and his gospel. We think about it from the account of Luke and his gospel, both earthly perspectives filled with people from Earth primarily. Mary and Joseph, Zechariah and Elizabeth, we've talked about these people, these past few weeks. And it's a story that's from their perspective, recorded by Matthew, recorded by Luke. Even the shepherds and the wise men are from Earth's perspective. Even the angels that we read about have come to Earth. And we get that perspective from them as well. But have you ever stopped to consider that the Christmas story may be bigger? than any of us realize, that maybe there's more going on behind the scenes than we even realize. 25 years ago, author Max Lucado wrote a little book called Cosmic Christmas. It's a fiction book that draws from the biblical narrative to remind us of the hidden happenings surrounding the birth of our Savior. Is it possible that the Christmas story is more cosmic than we recognize? So my hope for the next few moments is that we come to even a greater awareness. You're going to have to use your imagination a little bit, a greater awareness of God's love in light of the cosmic reality of Christmas. So in a moment uh, ago, I asked you to pull out your Bibles, and I hope that you took that seriously uh, because my words are going to return void, but the Word of the God will, will not return void. I believe that. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to the end of the Bible in Revelation. Not Matthew, not Luke, uh, not even John's gospel, which we're going to revisit next week, but John's revelation in Revelation chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. And cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. It's a quote from Psalm chapter two. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So let's pause right there for a moment. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is the translator of the the message Bible, he, he says it this way. This is not the nativity story that we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Now, some scholars would caution us and encourage us not to make the jump too hastily from John's revelation being parallel to the birth story of Christ, and certainly there's some good wisdom with that caution, but with there being so much to unpack here, uh, Lord willing, I do hope to come back at some time and make more of a series out of this, because there's a lot of things contextually that we need to go through. There will be a lot of things that we need to talk about in terms of what this is as it relates to apocalyptic literature and as it relates to Revelation as a whole. And uh, we don't have time to get into all that, but I I do want to revisit that at some time. But just a a note or two that I think will help us this morning, Uh, and one is just that word apocalypse. Often when you heard, hear that word apocalypse, what do you think of? You don't have to answer out loud, but you, you think of uh, the end of the world typically when you think of that word. Uh, and that word apocalypse is actually a word that comes from the biblical text. Uh, it's the Greek word apo- apocalypse. and we see that word about 18 times in our New Testament. Uh, but most of—most often it's not translated as apocalypse. Most often it's translated uh, as revelation or manifestation, because what the word apocalypse literally means—it doesn't mean the end of the world—what what the word really means is an uncovering, a revealing, a peeling back the curtain of a divine reality. So this is what is actually meant, and media has hijacked that word to make it mean all things that it's, it's not intended to mean. But it means just a, a peeling back and uncovering, a, a revealing. And so in Revelation 12, we see some fairly clear descriptions of the birth story. I want you to think about appealing back of the curtain, appealing back of, of this divine reality. So verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child. And so we're kind of tracking with the nativity story just a little bit, but but then there's one detail that is very un-Christmas-like. It's not a detail that we we tend to bring out and draw out in the Christmas story, and that's verse 4. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. The dragon was a common symbol in ancient Near Eastern and Greek mythology representing chaos, representing disorder, representing opposition to the divine. Uh, this morning, when I came in, I was the first person here, usually get here kind of early and come to the auditorium, spend a moment praying, spend a moment just collecting my thoughts. came in this morning, and, uh, and right in front of Kevin's feet was a dragon. It was actually about a a three-and-a-half-inch lizard right here, but it looked like, it looked, I mean, I could have sworn it was a dragon. Can you imagine what would have happened if I had not taken care of that dragon this morning? I took care of it for you guys, because if that thing was squirreling around the the auditorium, I imagine there would be just a a little bit of chaos erupt. There'd be a little bit of disorder erupt in this place. There'd be a, a few squeals that maybe came out. Uh, We've been studying uh, medieval history in our house this past semester, and one of the things that we are learning is that that map makers in those days, they didn't have the luxury of Google Maps. They couldn't just pull that up on their cellular device. And so, some of the maps that were made during that time period uh, included areas that were uncharted, areas that were undiscovered. And what would happen is they would, they would put these images in these, particularly in the seas of these places, images that depicted uh, that this could be dangerous, this could be you know, chaotic territory. And so you'll see a map on the screen of, of one of those examples of sea monsters that were placed in the sea in these places that were uncharted. You even see on the right-hand side a red dragon. It depicted in that day, it depicted this idea of uncertainty, chaos, disorder in this place. Revelation asserts, however, that the dragon is the deceiver of the whole world. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, in her book Advent, the Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ, records this that the book of Revelation, much misunderstood, is nevertheless vitally important for the life and witness of the church. All the powers and forces of the universe are conceived as an embattled host. The struggle is between God and His great enemy. This vast cosmic struggle involves all human beings in some way, but we are not aware of it except by faith. Let's continue to explore this uncovering, and this, this divine revealing in verse 6 of Revelation 12. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. This is also an image that we don't typically bring up in the Christmas story. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. I would propose that John is not describing the casting out of rebellious angels from heaven at the dawn of creation. This, this casting down of Satan from heaven is likely a representation of spiritual defeat. Spiritual defeat that ultimately was a result of this child, the apocalypse, the uncovering, the revealing, the peeling back of the curtain of divine reality was that this was taking place in the midst of the earthly narrative, that this was taking place in the, in the midst of what we would call a a silent night where all is calm and all is bright, but the heavenly reality was anything but calm and bright. What the war in heaven and the casting down of the dragon depict is the defeat of Satan by the cross that Luke so adequately described a few moments ago during his communion thoughts. I'm thankful that that Luke was able to share this morning. Uh, one year ago this month, Luke was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And this church has continued to surround him and his family and continue to to pray and, and be with. And, and this is what this is what church family and the church body does. What we see in this story in Revelation 12 is the The ultimate picture of self sacrificial love. This is the the paradox of the cross. It's why that we can put a symbol of unending love onto an instrument of torture. It's the paradox. Do you see the paradox? To the world, this this is crazy. How can an instrument of torture become a symbol of unending love? It's a symbol of unending love because of who got on that cross in a self-sacrificial way. This is the story that changes our lives. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Uh, just a few takeaways from this uncommon Christmas message, number one is that we have to remember that we have a real enemy. So Paul reminds the church in Ephesus, Ephesians six ten. finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So put on the armor, and then what does Paul say at the end of that passage, and pray. Put on the armor and pray. The schemes of the evil one are often lurking this time of year behind the cloak of everything seeming merry and bright, and our enemy can have a fill day. The enemy convinces us that we are not worthy to be loved. The enemy speaks lies over our identity and who we are. He seeks to steal and kill and destroy. He seeks to steal our hope, to kill any sense of peace, to destroy our joy in Christ. You see how the enemy can distort the Advent themes. Have you ever been tempted to lose hope? Have you ever been tempted to allow the enemy to steal your joy? Have you ever been tempted to harbor bitterness, to withhold forgiveness? Have you been tempted to throw in the towel lately? We're reminded during this season that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. And so we have one who intercedes on our behalf, who knows because he did not just stay in his heavenly comfort, but he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. His coming allows us to approach his throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of me. Church, love became a person. And John would say in his earlier writing that the Word was God. And what did John say when he proclaimed this thought in his letter, 1 John, that we read a few moments ago? God is love. And so, secondly, we remember that his coming again is awaiting his loving patience. Second Peter 3, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why do the faithful suffer injustice and opposition to? John declares it's because they're at war. That Satan has declared war on those who hold to this testimony. So Revelation 12 it introduces the true power behind the throne. It identifies to the readers of that day who the real enemy is, and in that day, they believed that the real enemy was Rome. And John is peeling back the curtain. He is uncovering, he is revealing in this revelation that that no, 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 it's it's not Rome is not your enemy. Their true opponent, according to Revelation 12, is not some first century political empire. Their true enemy is Satan himself. And we would do well to remember that our primary struggle is not against a social or political conflict but a spiritual conflict. And so remember, church, that our enemy is a defeated foe and our victory is through not donkeys and elephants, but the blood of the lamb. So in what ways might you reflect on this reality this week? Instead of the the endless scrolling, or or instead of the distractions that that come our way, what, what if we just spent some time in solitude? What if we spent some time around the table? What if we spent some time in the living room? What if we spent some time reflecting on this cosmic reality? Verse 13, Revelation 12, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from the, his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Church, if you keep God's commands and hold fast to your testimony about Jesus, war is inevitable. It's inevitable. And Advent is a time to review once again where our faith is placed to time once again to review how our lives are lived trust in Jesus is not merely this this one-time act but it's actually this continuous state of being it's a moment by moment existence and God not only wants to be with us he wants you to be in him Living the baptized life is a daily turning from a life lived for self to a life lived in tune with the power of the Spirit who continually calls us to be like Jesus, the one who displayed self-sacrificial love. And when self-sacrificial love is lived out, the evil one is no more. And so, when we gather with family this week, and those moments get a little tense, and we start looking at our watches, and we start getting anxious about the goings-ons and all that's happening. And we have an opportunity to squash evil in its tracks through self-sacrificial love. An apocalypse may envision an ending, but when it does, that ending inaugurates a new beginning, a prelude to a new creation. As with the resurrection of Christ, an ending gives birth to new life, there is a new heaven and a new earth, complete with a new Jerusalem, as John tells us in Revelation 21. And as the God of creation, the God of resurrection declares, I am making all things new. Max Licato goes on to say it this way. John's description of the war in the heavens doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does answer the most important. It tells us who won. God did. He also tells us who matters. You do. Imagine if God will fight such a fight to save you that He must really think you are worth the effort. Though we may wonder about the war that occurred, there is no need to wonder about His love. So in love, we become an Advent voice. In love, we become this voice to the world around us, and we pray as John closes out his revelation in Revelation twenty-two twenty. want you to say this with me he who testifies to these things says yes I am coming amen come Lord Jesus let's pray this morning our father and our God we're so humbled when we reflect on the cosmic reality of your love in our lives Lord I thank you so much for loving us that you would leave your realms of majestic glory to come and to dwell among us. If it had not been for your great love that compelled you to come and redeem us, today we would still be lost in our sin. But because you loved us so much, you were willing to come to this earth to purchase our salvation. Thank you for coming, Lord. Thank you for loving me enough to temporarily shed your glory and become a man so that you could pay for my sin, save me to the uttermost. Y'all we're thankful. And so we pray as your son taught his disciples to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And the church said, amen.